Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi everyone, my name is Dev Raga and welcome to My Millennium Money Medical. And in this episode, we have a special guest, Ryan from One Medical. And I'm going to ask him specific questions about what it means to operate a locum agency, but also some questions that some of the locum doctors that are listening to this channel and this episode may want to ask Ryan directly. So I did put up a post in the locum doctors Facebook group and I had lots and lots of interesting questions. So uh, Ryan, welcome. Thank you. Cheers for having me, Dev. Much appreciated. You ready to go? Yeah, I'm concerned now there's extra questions. I don't know if I'm going to be put on the, put on the spot here, you know. Lots of interesting questions. Um, so let's get started. Now, if you're new to the channel, remember the three main aims of this, education, empowerment and entertainment. And if you have any specific questions, please don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. So, Ryan, thank you very much for joining us. Just a little bit of background. I've been in contact with One Medical for a number of years now. I've been in contact with Nick, who's been really lovely to deal with. So thank you very much, uh, Nick. Shout out to you. And essentially... The reason I've been in contact with Nick is because opportunities for locuming for myself some years ago, but also trying to link up some locums that I know that are always looking for work. And I always send it um, to Nick for analysis. So appreciate that. I just want to ask a few questions about how to create a locum agency and perhaps how One Medical came into existence. I'm curious about the name because it's the actual number one and then medical. So can you tell me a little bit about how that name came about? Yeah, we we were thinking of um, how to make something that would be somewhat memorable and stand out. And hopefully we've achieved that by calling the agency with the numeric one at the start of it. Um, it's had a sort of a, a byproduct of an outcome where it comes at the top of every list, um, which has its pros and cons because um, we get uh, all sorts of crazy inquiries coming to us because we're the first company on the list when people call. Um, but the reason why the name came about was we previously um, were part of a startup agency in Australia about uh, 13 years ago. And we took that business from startup in Australia to being what we felt by the data that we could get hold of was the, the market leader by volume in terms of locum work. So we had a, a, a goal to become number one. So when we started over all again in 2018, 2019, uh, we thought, why not, why not call it number one? Because we're, we're going to become number one again. So might as well call it that from the outset. So what happened to the previous company? So can I just clarify, you founded a company that was the startup or you, you were part of a startup and then now you've sort of split and gone your own way? Is that what's happened? Or Yeah, we, we were employees of a previous company that was part of a larger group. And in 2015, that company was acquired by a UK PLC listed company. Um, myself and some of the others went through the post-acquisition period with um, the usual type of things that go on in an acquisition in terms of earnouts, etc. Right. And uh, then we decided to to start up on our, on our own further down the line and took some time out, had a had a break for twelve months, and then went at it uh, again. And we're now sort of three and a half, four years into that journey. 
Fantastic. Yeah. So what does it then take to create a locum agency? Now, I've actually had a few doctors contact me uh, in 2022 because, you know, the the rates of locums have gone up, agency fees may have gone up. And they've actually said, oh, Dev, why can't I just start a locum agency? I assume it's not as simple as that. I assume there are some legislative barriers, there are some regulations. So how does it actually work to create an agency like what you have now? Yeah, I mean, it's quite a quite a broad question. I mean, I suppose in theory, it's quite simple to create any form of recruitment agency. You know, you, you select your area of focus and then you try and find people to um, fill the jobs in that area. But like most things in life, in reality, it's a lot more complex. Um, you know, recruitment is selling in two different directions. You're selling to two different parties that are both um, humans and they've got their own thoughts and mindsets and desires and criteria so it's there's a lot of moving parts um i've been uh, doing recruitment now since i left uni in 2006 or about 16 years i believe um our team in one medical has got probably about 110 120 collective years experience in medical recruitment um Mm. so there's there's quite a lot of um, knowledge in there but um it really takes high energy to do recruitment um, especially contract recruitment and especially anything to do with healthcare and then for locum agencies in Australia, it's a, it's a different game again because the eight states and territories create essentially the need for eight different business models. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen and been approached by many doctors over the years about starting agencies. And we see quite a lot of doctors often start what is you know technically an agency, but it's often themselves and one or two friends that they're connected to. And not many of those tend to go further than the, you know, the initial small group of people because the reality of getting a couple of your friends into a few shifts in a local hospital is very different to supplying across all of the eight, nine, ten different main specialisms across the eight states and territories. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's understandable why people look at it and think, oh, I'd be interested in that. Um, the rates going up is an interesting thing because a lot of people don't realise that with contract recruitment, the costs of the business in terms of running the payroll are directly related to the pay of the individual. So yes, as the rates go up, the agencies are technically making more dollar margin, but their costs are also increasing proportionately. So your insurance costs increase proportionately, your work cover costs increase, the payroll tax increases, and then your financing costs because... Um, quite a lot of hospitals take anywhere from two to eight weeks to pay the agency. So mm. you've got that sort of backlog of cash flow book, as we call it, the debt book that uh, that, that needs to be carried and ma- managed and maintained to, uh, to stay in business. Mm. I've got some specific questions about the rates coming up a little bit later in the episode. Just, just going back to what you said about individual states and territories. So I actually didn't know this. So I thought when you create an agency, it's sort of immediately nationally recognised, accredited and all that sort of stuff. Is there an accreditation standard to have a locum agency? Yeah, so there's multiple different types of accreditation, but the other forms of recruitment outside of healthcare are often quite um, localised to a certain extent. They're often mainly metro-based. For example, you you might create an IT recruitment company that's based in Melbourne. And yep. you'll you'll focus on that core area. And once you've got rolling weight behind you, you'll expand into state potentially to Sydney. When you work with doctors, you have to go national straight away if you want to be one of mm. the main players because the doctors are very mobile skill sets. Um, it's one of the few skill sets where you can finish somewhere on a Friday and fly somewhere over the weekend and start somewhere else on the Monday in fundamentally the same role. There's very few industries that do that. So you need to be able to offer the doctors the work across the entire country. Mm. Um, If you're not offering the work in all the different states and territories, you you run a risk of losing them to other agencies that are. So in terms of legislation and, and licensing and that type of thing, 
Most of the states and territories have got some form of framework or panel arrangement where they have approved locum agencies that have to be either tender or vetted onto those panels and frameworks. Those tenders usually roll on a three to five year cycle. You have to get your agency onto those to be in with contention. And then you've also got um, three or four different types of labour hire licences. One by one, the states and territories are all adding a labour hire licence. So you have to deal with those types of things. But the thing I mean more so is when you're payrolling people across multiple states, you then have to have the back office support to be able to administer the uh, management of that payroll function that's that's a challenge in itself you know it's uh, right. you know tracking how much work cover you need to pay for example especially then when you've got a doctor who might be doing two weeks next month in Queensland and then popping over to South Australia for a couple of weeks and and back and forth between different states when you look in your payroll system you know how much money you've paid them and then you have to go looking into where did you pay them and and what what format mm. were they paid in which I suspect we'll probably come on to in this conversation as well it's it's all these little intricacies that a lot of people are not aware of now in terms of one medical are you headquartered in Sydney or Melbourne or do you have a distributed headquarter network or how, how does that work with your company we're, we're based in Sydney and um, we've got an Australian domestic team of 20 um, at the moment. So we, we started with one person in 2018. So it's it's quite yep. significant growth to go from one to 20 in the sort of three and a half, four year period. Um, we have two of the Australian team based up in Queensland. And outside of that, that's where we're based. So Sydney and uh, one individual in Brisbane and one individual in the Gold Coast. Um, okay. And the individuals cover the entire country within their specialisms of medicine. So we have an ED team, we have a psychiatry team, we have a medical specialist team, and we have a general practice team. And that's how we divide the teams up to be able to service the clients and service the doctors um, with the best service possible. I think that's really interesting because I always thought that within locum agencies, there were sub-teams working on specific shifts because your shift for psychiatry is going to be totally different to your shift for a surgical locum or a medical locum or even an ED locum. So I'm glad that you clarified that. Do you guys do public hospitals only or do you do private hospitals as well? So we do both. Um, Very roughly, we're probably about 90% public due to the size and scale of the public um, system and also its its ongoing need. You know, it needs to continually run and be serviced. Um, We found before COVID that there was private work in the market, but it was somewhat limited and much more focused around the metro areas, obviously, due to the propensity for uh, sorry, private hospitals to be in those areas. Post During and post-COVID, the amount of private work that's come onto the market has increased substantially due to the, the just this growing shortage of doctors and the lack of distribution of those doctors. Quite a lot of doctors dropped out of the workforce, as we all know, and uh, mm. quite a lot of incoming doctors never made it here. So, you know, all of those factors have put, I suspect, pressure on the private system. And as we're seeing, there seems to be a bit of a growing increase in the private system in Australia to start edging more into the public world, mm. as we've seen in other countries as well. Certainly, there's a lot of private EDs. I mean, I'm I'm based in Melbourne, and in Melbourne and Sydney, there's a lot of private EDs that are you know engaging locum agencies to advertise for shifts. Uh, I know plenty of doctors uh, personally that that work in the private ED system. So I suspect you're right. There is that growth in that private sector, 
um, but I'm not surprised that majority of your work is in the public sector, uh, particularly in the rural areas as well. Now, we, we have lots and lots of medical administrators uh, and also CEOs of hospital networks listening in. I mean, you're sort of the middle person, right? I mean, I mean, let's pretend that I'm the doctor and you have to deal with me, but at the same time, you need to also deal with medical workforce and a branch of the executive team, maybe the director of medical services or chief medical officer across health networks. Um, and that sort of slightly varies depending on where you are in Australia. So from a medical administrator point of view, what can they do to make your life easier? Because there's a lot of hospitals, particularly in the country, that are always crying out for healthcare staff, nurses, doctors, whatever it is. So I've got heaps of medical administrators who work in the rural areas who want to fill gaps and fill shifts and they want to learn what they can do better to help you to match those shifts with doctors that you may have on your books. Yes, yeah, well, it's, it's good to hear that that's the case, um, you know, because there is a, a sort of a, a reputation in some forms of recruitment of a bit more of an us and them scenario. But we we feel in healthcare that that doesn't exist as much because we're all part of the same system together trying to, you know, get the end outcome, which is putting a doctor into a hospital that's needed. I mean, I, I, in terms of the medical workforce units, I actually feel for a lot of them. Um, the hours that some of those guys work, you know, we, we get emails from first thing in the morning till last thing at night. We get regular emails on weekends. I know uh, many predominantly uh, lovely ladies that go into work on the weekend and mail shut out the vacancies because they haven't had a chance to be able to do it in the in the craziness of Monday to Friday. And, uh, you know, it, I do feel for them. And, and we've had some very long-standing and close relationships with many of them. The best relationships that we see in the country are often where we've got a strong direct relationship with the medical workforce unit, potentially, you know, the medical administrator or the secretary, whatever it might be of the department, and also potentially the clinical director or whoever the the, the, the true sort of what we would call in the real recruitment world of the hiring manager, if that makes sense. Mm. And having that sort of combination of the two or three relationships can really be effective because you've you've got that multi sort of approach of getting the overall agreements in place of whatever the booking of the doctor might be and then the follow through of the actual secondary part, which is often a lot more complex than the first part, which is actually you know, getting the right doctor in, getting them credential, getting their travel and accommodation arranged, making sure that their welcome packs and their their arrival details are all in place for them and that type of thing. But I mean, the, the one thing I would say is, you know, please be assured that we, we are here to help and there's nothing we'd like more than to help. And if that means that we can look at how we can improve our communication in both directions or understand your needs better or whatever it might be, then, then we're all ears. And there is this fundamental shortage of doctors, though, just to remind everyone, and that does cause a lot of pressure. So we're not magicians. We, we, are, we are working flat out um, full time and trying to find more doctors and get any form of availability off those doctors that we are finding. Because as you know yourself as well, many of them are very busy. Many of them hold down multiple jobs and they, they're, they're not time, uh, time rich. Mm. Yeah, look, I think, so I've, I've been a director in the past and I'm, I'm currently am a sort of in the executive role at one of the one of the hospitals that I work at. And you're spot on about medical workforce. It is a really tough job uh, for medical workforce. It is a really tough job for uh, locum agencies like yourself. Now, I have to be fair, doctors are not easy to deal with. Some of us can be absolute nightmares to deal with. And you know, the public perception of, you know, doctors being empathetic, you know, caring, doing all this hard training, all that sort of stuff. Well, 
as the executive side of things, and, and I'm sure from a medical workforce side of things, we see a different side that perhaps the public may not see. You know, some of the conversations that I've had with doctors, very difficult, doc, uh, you know, conversations, and you sort of said, holy crap, you know, this is not the way normal people should be speaking to each other. And this is not the way that uh, any other profession, if you spoke to me in that way, you'd be out the door tomorrow. But for whatever reason with, with healthcare and particularly the medical profession, I think allied health nursing staff are way ahead in terms of the way that, that, that they communicate with each other. The medical um, side of things can be really, really tough. And I, and I do feel uh, for the medical workforce units because you know, they can get constantly hammered uh, by doctors uh, and also locum agencies because a lot of doctors work long hours. They're awake all hours of the night. And the expectation is when an email is sent, why haven't you responded within 15 or 20 minutes? Uh, now, when I was a director in my previous position, I've dealt with a lot of locum agencies and, uh, you know, calling them up at 10 o'clock at night. Hey, I need a shift filled tomorrow morning. I'm actually quite surprised that they do return the phone calls, you know, at 10 o'clock at night. So is there some sort of on-call system for you guys where you guys are constantly sort of monitoring emails or phone calls? I mean, how, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the issue is, is what, what can you actually do at 10 o'clock at night with uh, in the doctor market? I mean, mm. let's be honest, if it was hard enough to find the doctor in the daytime, you're not going to find one at 10 o'clock at night. And mm. um, we do have an on-call system. Um, it it at this stage, it predominantly switches between myself and the other director's mobile. So if you do fancy ringing me at two in the morning and mm. the phone wakes me up, I, I will wake up. Um, our late night calls are often when, for example, a doctor has arrived somewhere and the person wasn't there to pick them up mm. and that type of thing. Um, usually that then involves us ringing the personal mobile number of the medical administration person. Uh, the medical workforce person, and usually it's resolved very quickly. It's, it's fortunately it's very it's quite rare, but uh, yeah, it's um, we see some we see some crazy things in medical. It's mm. a different world, you know. Mm. I, I can't I can't. You mentioned about allied and nursing before. I, I can't comment on that world, but um, but certainly we do see uh, we 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 see things that you may not see in other areas, and we notice the same with our recruitment business. It does it does operate and behave and act and have a different culture to other sectors of non-healthcare. Mm. Um, Fridays can often be our busiest day, whereas in other sectors of recruitment, it's often their quietest day. Mm. Fridays, we're often working frantically right until the 11th hour, whereas in other sectors, their clients are semi-checked out and therefore they're semi-checked out. Ours are still going um, full steam, trying to um, get things in place before the weekend. You know, we, we regularly place doctors last minute as well, as much as we do a lot of long-term planning. We do a lot of roster management. We do a lot of mapping out. We map rosters out for um, quite a few months, if not six to 12 months in advance in some cases. And um, we also do last minute shift filling. We do both ends of the scale. So it can it can lead to some quite unusual times of days for emails, phone calls, follow-ups, weekends, etc. Mm. When I was a locum back in the day, uh, I started off as a locum or did some extra work uh, as a locum back in 2009 onwards. The locum agency would, would practically just send me the roster and the hospital would just say, we want Dev, um, give him all the shifts that he ever wants. And it was actually quite easy at, at the start of every roster, they'd just give me the roster. And I, and I would fill in the shifts myself and that would be presented to the hospital. It always got approved like three or six months in advance. And I would try and locum you know, outside of my existing uh, job, which was being a surgical registrar, which was busy enough, but I was quite aggressive in terms of income generation. Now, we've heard the medical admin side of things. What about from a doctor side of things? So I'm a doctor. You know, most doctors 
you know, I'd like to say are pretty reasonably easy to deal with. Uh, but, you, you know, some of us are quite OCD and, and come across as quite narky and aggressive and blah, blah, blah. What makes it easier for you guys to deal with a doctor? And what can doctors do to make your job easier and streamline it? Because at the end of the day, you know, as doctors, we want to work extra, want to make extra money with our spare time because spare time is opportunity cost. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose to, to before before I answer that question, we, we tend to find most doctors are quite um, good and easy to deal with, um, especially once we get a little bit into the process with them and they start to realise that we actually know what we're talking about, we've got experience, we start to give them reassurance that we, you know, we're not just trying to, uh, you know, pop them to somewhere that we've never worked with before and, and hope that it all works out, that type of thing. But, but I, I do take on board your comments. Uh, yeah, there's, there's certainly some, uh, some, some, some interesting personalities around, um, which I, I don't know, I, I tend to try with my dealings with people to be nice until I'm given a reason not to be nice. But it seems, again, if they've had bad experiences with agencies, I can understand why they might be on the back foot, you know, especially if they've had a long day and had a couple of, sales calls and pitching work to them and they've been let down by an agency and then we pick up the phone as a fresh set of uh, mm. as a fresh face and we're expecting happiness and we're met with them um, and um, disgruntlement mm. um i mean look like most things in life honesty and transparency and up and being upfront and um, it's just fundamentally key to everything and um, we're, we're working in a very technical space with a lot of moving parts and um, if there's anything that's being held back you know reasons why you might not be able to go to work or reasons why You've, you know, if we're offering you, for example, Queensland, but you've worked there before and you don't want to go there, just get that out on the table to begin with instead of, you know, going going around the houses, so to speak. Um, you know, and expect the same back, you know, if, expect the recruitment uh, consultant to also give you that same sort of level of back and forth in terms of um, that honesty and transparency. And um, we train our team to be upfront. Um, we, it's one of our key things when we're onboarding junior staff. Um, we, we train them to be upfront and honest and open. And we also train them to try and tackle problems head on and, 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 and not let the problem manifest into something bigger. Um, because when you're dealing with what is ultimately going to be a doctor going to potentially a rural location, potentially being solo on call, the ramifications of that placement falling over are quite sub significant, far much more so than another project IT engineer going to a project with 15 other project engineers on a Monday. Mm. So it's a whole different, uh, it's a whole different game. Um, I think one of the things that can often help is to sort of deal with a limited amount of agencies. It's fair enough to want to sort of get a breadth of the market and see see what's out there. But being, I'm, I'm the first to admit this, there's a lot of recruiters out there that claim that they've got millions of different types of exclusive work and all this type of stuff. The reality is 80 plus percent of all the shifts um, that are running through the locum agencies are out on the sort of open local market. Um, so, you know, by and large, if you start dealing with three, four, five, six agencies, you're going to start potentially getting annoyed at the level of phone calls, annoyed at the emails, annoyed at the sort of the interactions. It's better to taste a few and see one or two that you like and then hone into them. And then we tend to find most doctors that work with us after they've worked with us once or twice, they they settled, settle into doing the majority of their work um, through ourselves. Um, and that can quite often be over a number of years on and off. One main thing I think would be be realistic about expectations. Um, We'll, we'll probably come on to rates, as we know, but mm. certainly around rates, being realistic around it and um, being realistic about the rosters. Um, you know, it, it, yes, things can be accommodated, but if you're going somewhere for two weeks and, um, you know, you're, you're only wanting to work a small, limited number of shifts during that two week period for whatever reason that might be, be 
be sort of understanding when the hospital's pushing back on us saying, why doesn't he want, or he or she, sorry, want to work at least, you know, 11, 12 days out of 14, for example, mm. you know, that type of thing, because it's, it's putting them in a position where they're going to have to work the other doctors harder or bring in another locum and the costs then start amplifying. Um, accommodation and flights, um, particularly accommodation, flights are often to a certain extent, they are what they are, um, you know, within reason that there's either an airline going there or there isn't. And if Australia's heavily dominant on a maximum of two or three airlines, as mm. you know, but accommodation is a big sticking point um, because that can be the, the key that does make or break the um, the, the locum. Um, so again, trying to be understanding some of these locations just simply do not have the accommodation. Some of them are trying to do everything they can to get more accommodation. Um, and it's, trying to get the balance between the reality of going i'm more speaking about rural here to be honest yeah yep. trying to get the balance right between going to a rural town and what may or may not be available and what that how that fits in with what you're looking for mm. the temp yeah it, it, c communicate back with the agencies as, with or with the agent that you're looking to work with as, as soon as you can and be as clear and direct as you can um and and start tackling the paperwork process sooner rather than later um because it's going to it's going to need to be done Definitely talk about that paperwork bureaucracy. I mean, do you find that doctors are better when you text them, email them, or phone call them? Um, yeah, we're, we're in a different world now. We've, we've, we've got WhatsApp groups set up and everything. But, uh, Great. but yeah, it, 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 we tend to fall in with what the doctor's looking for because we're obviously here to provide a service. So if the doctor is looking for just text me, text me I'm on shift or um, text me and I'll, I'll, I'll call you back at lunch, whatever it might be. The guys will do that, you know. Um, with with many people, we might try multiple approaches until they settle into whatever suits them most. When you're dealing with the actual proper contracts, confirmation schedules, et cetera, et cetera, the, and the paperwork, that's all going via email yeah. um, for obvious reasons. Yeah, because, I mean, some doctors are very good with email, some doctors are not. Um, I mean, I'm, I don't particularly like talking on the phone too much. So I like WhatsApp. I like SMS. I like email because I'm pretty good. I've got access to it. Uh, WhatsApp groups are great. I've found, um, because it just, I don't know, for some reason, some doctors just respond to it much quicker than even text messages, even though the concept is exactly the same. Um, and certainly much better than email. <laughs> it's interesting that because we feel the same as well with our, you know, even personal lives and on our work groups, et cetera. It's just, it's fundamentally the same principle, but it just feels so much easier to use. It's more user friendly. And I think the way the groups work and also a lot of us these days have it on our computer, on our desktops as well. Mm. So we can, uh, we can get through, get through messages at a fair rate of knots on a keyboard as opposed to a, a small mobile phone. I agree. Yeah. Now we might take a quick break. And when we come back, I've got a few more questions about the model of locuming, you know, ABN versus proprietary limited versus employee model. And we'll talk a little bit about bureaucracy because I know your business has a credentialing system, which is nationwide and also talk about travel and accommodation. You did sort of step on that a little bit. Be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So welcome back. We're here with Ryan from One Medical Locum Agency. Um, so I'll thank Ryan for his time. I've got a few more questions, Ryan. What's the norm from your experience in terms of locum opportunity? So for example, when I locumed, I was employed by the public hospital system as a registrar. Then I just set up my own ABN and basically used the ABN to locum through a locum agency. So what are some of the models available, employee versus ABN versus proprietary limited? What do you guys normally do? Well, we do everything that's available within the, uh, within the sort of the, the eyes of the law and the ATO, et cetera. So we um, engage doctors on casual PAYG contracts, and we also engage them on um, limited company PTY limited contracts. When it comes to ABN, in Australia, ABN's often a confused uh, phrase. So um, in my previous home nation, we call it being a sole trader. Um, but over here, the ABN gets intertwined with uh, when you have a PTY limited company, you've also got an Australian company number set mm-hmm. up, an ACN. Um, the ABN has a corresponding ACN and it often gets confusing because every ACN has an ABN. So yep. it, can, it can be a bit of a point of confusion. Since 2012, the ATO ruled that um, third party agencies of any format, including recruitment agencies, can't pay ABN doctors directly that are, that are a sole trader. Um, they technically can, but they have to treat them as a PAYG casual and um, tax and super them. So for simplicity, many agencies simply don't pay ABN doctors, but it gets confusing because one or two still do pay ABN doctors, but that's another story. Um, but you will often see advertised payment via ABN, but in many cases, that's a confusion and they're actually behind the scenes, meaning that it's a payment via PTY limited company. The, the payment model varies by state by state. So some states, the agencies pay the doctors and some states they don't. So um, we're, we're happy with both. We don't get to choose quite often because we're dictated to by the states and territories. Um, so for example, in Queensland, all the agencies pay the doctors in Tasmania, all the agencies pay the doctors, etc. Uh, New South Wales, um, all, the, all the doctors are paid by the, by the hospital system. 
Um, and then some states have got a bit of a mix of both going on. But, uh, but when a doctor approaches us, we ask them how they normally like to be paid. Um, if they've worked as a locum before, that will then often lead to the conversation evolving into whichever options might be best. Um, if they've never locumed before, we advise them to speak to their accountants. Um, it, it, it makes minimal difference to us how they want to be engaged. It's just a different process for us with different sort of legalities behind the scenes and contracts, etc. Um, so we have a fair split. Right. D- does that mean the doctors, so when you say casual, you know, PAYG, does that mean the doctors are having an employee number through One Medical? So it, it's, it's a contract between the doctor and One Medical? Yep. So we legally employ doctors on casual PAYG engagements. Um, one of the things we've seen of late with them, um, with various things in the uh, in the government, has been um, sort of the the, the imposement of potential changes to casual engagements, and it's it's a growing concern for us because without that casual PAYG engagement, we we're not quite sure how uh, a lot of the healthcare contract market across doctors and nurses, etc., would still continue mm. to exist. So I'm hoping that the uh, the changes in that space don't keep uh, don't keep coming down the pipeline. But uh, we we live in hope. So I'm actually not aware of those changes. Can you just maybe for listeners briefly explain? Uh, does that mean that in the future the government is saying that casual contracts are out the window? Is that is that what you mean, or no? They're not saying they're out the window, but but ultimately, um, the, the the Labor government is less keen on sort of flexible um, workforces and casual engagements. Is the is right. the general theme that we get told um, by the. Um, by the by, the people that we consult with, and um, as I say, our entire industry is 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 reliant on those engagements because, as you can imagine, an agency like ourselves, you know, we 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 will have employed in in that format several hundred doctors in the last twelve months alone. Um, we can't simply employ a doctor on a on a significant salary and have them not working, and because they're in a pattern whereby they go away and work, come back and not work, go away and work, etc. You know, fly in, fly out, rosters on, rosters off, etc. Um, we have to have the ability to be able to have them have that flexibility where they can go and work and be paid, and when they're not working, not be paid. Absolutely. I mean, to me, that's insanity. If 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 they're thinking of changing that to potentially phase out casual PAYG contracts, that would piss a lot of doctors off because I don't want to commit myself to permanent positions if I am a locum. The whole point of it is flexibility because I might have another job that I need to um, have a full-time role in. Yeah, one of, one of the things, I don't think they're looking at phasing it out. It's just that there'll potentially be steps made to change it, which might make it more and more difficult for companies like ourselves and doctors that work with us to be able to operate within it. Um, we've seen this in other countries as well, and we've seen the opposite in other countries as well, because ultimately it's a different world we live in now, and everybody mm. is in a much more flexible, um, you know, master of their own destiny type environment. But um, yeah, one of the things that I suppose um, that we that we see with it is that um that it's it's how the whole construct of the of the employment market is is fundamentally geared and one of the things that we see is that a good idea which is um, relevant to lower income more vulnerable skill sets far far away from doctors laws and legislation are brought in but then they're applied broadly across the entire employment Mm. sector Mm. Um, an example of that's a thing called casual conversion which was brought in last year um, and that's where when a casual has worked for a period of time, they need to be offered the opportunity to 
convert into casual uh, into permanent employment and mm. um, as you can imagine um, we, we were met with some very surprised doctors when we were offering them permanent employment options when they were approaching us for locum work and, and etc so it's a, it's a confusing space we try and hide all this from the doctors as best we can so that they can just focus on going out working getting paid and we this is what we deal with behind the scenes and trying to make sure that we we you know, keep within the law and keep a, a commercially viable business. I think a lot of doctors after hearing that would be very, very shocked because um, I had no idea as well. That's very, very interesting. Just just to be clear, because I don't want to now cause essentially a panic amongst of course, everyone. I don't of think they're being phased out. It's just that we've seen them um, We've seen steps. So I'll give you an example. Last week, uh, uh, legislation was passed for a domestic violence bill mm-hmm. um, and casuals are going to be, as of next year, um, eligible for paid leave for um, situations of domestic violence. Now, that, that's, that particular topic is a, is a very important and, and you know, mm-hmm. a sad situation that that has to be the case. And it could well be um, that, um, that it is a su- suitable thing that is put in place. But again, you have to look at some things from the other side of the fence. Well, if we've got a workforce that are very highly paid, um, how is an employer like ourselves in a position where we can potentially pay some of these things if, the, if there's no guarantee of work for these people, mm. if that makes sense? It's, it's, a com- it's a complex space. And that, uh, but yeah, we try and, as I say, stay, stay, keep the doctor workforce away from it as best we can. Yeah, yeah. You did mention about PTY Limited. So, yeah. So, so if I was a locum doctor, and I know some locum doctors create their own company and then use that as an entity, and the doctor is, you know, owner of the company but also an employee of the company. So, is that very common in the locum space? Do you have a lot of doctors that do that PTY Limited? Because I thought that the, um, and I guess we're going into the accounting side of things, but I thought, you know, when anyone exchanges their labour for money, which is what locums is all about. You go to a hospital, you do a shift, you exchange your labour for money. That's personal services income. You can't route that via a company structure. Um, so, But I know some locum doctors do do that. So what's the go there? Well, clearly I'm not legally qualified to talk about this in too much depth, but um, we're seeing a bit of a decline in, in some of the PTY limited contracting, but it's, it's more a, a sort of a, a grandfathering of the more senior doctors and they will have often been set up with their own private practice and mm. um, they might also have you know, a, 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 a partner that they're working with who's also engaged with the company. They might have um, administration support that's been employed by the company. They might fundamentally be a small two, three, four person company. Um, and earning income from multiple different locations and, 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 and avenues. So it, it, some of it's flowed through from that. There's also, there's also a lot of thing, I suppose, which is a bit different for medical, which is the sort of the, um, the I suppose, part of the uh, indemnities and the, the, the medical liability side of things. You know, you've, you've essentially got probably some of these people have been set up in this structure historically because they feel it gives them more protection mm. in the event of something potentially going wrong with their work. Um, and that's that's what we see. But uh, but as mm. I say, we we simply follow the the guidelines that are set by us. And if the doctor presents themselves as a casual PAYG, we engage them like that. Or or if they present themselves as a company, we engage them like that and follow the relevant um, guidelines around it. Right now to the bureaucracy side of things. So uh, and you know technically I'm a bureaucrat because um, I'm you know technically <laughs> part of the executive. Um, so one of the frustrating things for me is that every single time we get a locum or every single time we get a new doctor, we got to credential them. Now, for everyone outside of Victoria, Victoria has about 40 health networks. 
um, as opposed to, you know, New South Wales or Queensland that has something called Queensland Health or New South Wales Health or SA Health. Victoria doesn't have Vic Health. Uh, now, that's got its positives and negatives. Um, the negatives are the left hand doesn't know what the right hand doing. So essentially, if I go across different hospitals, I need to be recredentialed. So there's a lot of bureaucracy there. Surely, if I'm credentialed at Hospital A in Victoria for a particular specialty, let's say emergency, surely those documents can be shared easily, electronically, centrally, rather than me having to keep applying and keep filling in forms and, you know, documents getting, uh, what is it, uh, witnessed by Justice of Peace and all that. So how do you approach that? Because I think you've got your own little solution for that. Can you maybe talk us a little bit through about the process? Yeah, the, the the paperwork in our sector is, as you just described, it is quite substantial. Um, it is important. I mean, it leads fundamentally to patient safety, and it's also for the the care of the worker, e.g., you know, the doctor. You know, a lot of a lot of the paperwork at the back end of the process can often be around um, stuff like work health and safety, etc. And as I mentioned before, it needs to be done. It's very rare that anybody is going to be working in a public hospital without the paperwork being completed. Um, if, if that does happen, there's something has gone wrong in the process. But it, there's there's two sets of uh, systems checking that. You know, you've got the agency fully checking it, and then even though the agency has fully checked it and got it to 100% complete, you've then got the medical workforce unit on the other side of the fence, which again fully checks it, and usually, as you mentioned as well, gets some form of director sign off on it as well. So it's it's going through three sets of eyes. Ultimately, is quite often the case. We're, last time we counted, we were working with at least 75 different um, paperwork systems across the country. Um, that, that, to some people, that might sound too much. To some, it might sound a huge amount. But um, the, the baseline of that paperwork is often quite similar. You know, the CV, the um, medical indemnity, the 100 points of ID, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But then it goes into the um, state-specific paperwork, and then it goes into the hospital-specific paperwork. And then you get down into the far back end of it, and we're talking about you know access codes for IT systems and that type of thing. So there's, there's multiple parts to all the paperwork. We decided to once and for all um, try and resolve it and digitalize it. And we went to, down the route of... Um, looking at where the similarities were across this paperwork and then seeing which data could be um, uh, transferred and, and, f- and, 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 and pushed into different types of forms. So when a doctor on boards with ourselves these days, we send them an electronic secure link, which they open up and they enter their data into it. That data is saved immediately into what we call their community portal. They can go back into that community portal at any time and update it if they need to, or they can ask their agent to go into it and update it on their behalf as well, and then they can check it, et cetera. Um, it is a it is a live uh, piece of information. It's not stagnant. Um, we then use that information to fill the paperwork around the country. So, for example, if you went with us tomorrow to work in New South Wales, you would fill out that process once. It might take you 15, 20 minutes because you're doing the 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 the, the bulk of it once. If then two weeks later you wanted to go to Queensland, we would deliver you the Queensland paperback for you to check and sign digitally um, immediately and instantaneously through the system. It was, a, it was a huge challenge that we had and we had to try and fix it because we're under pressure with increasing costs. Doctors are becoming scarcer in the market. We need to make it as easy for them to accept work as possible because quite often one of the things that we're told is, oh, I'd love to go, but um, I'm really sorry, but I'm not going to get home until seven o'clock on Friday evening. I won't be able to look at the paperwork until then. Now we're in a position where we can say to them, 
how about if we had the paperwork sat in your inbox in five minutes? And uh, initially they don't believe us and then they see it with their own eyes and then they start to use the system and it starts to evolve into something. Um, Sorry, Ryan, does that, just to clarify, does that mean that I do the paperwork once? So log in, I do it once, it's a portal and the same paperwork can be used by the agent or by the doctor and giving it to various hospitals. So basically the doctor doesn't have to keep re-uploading the same information. Correct. Now, because of the sheer complexity of all of these forms, it's not 100%, but we've got it as close to 100% as what we can. Um, so, for example, in that, in that instance I used the example of before, the doctor will always be responsible for checking, filling in the final parts and digitally signing. Um, but when you move from one location to another, we'll be delivering the next location's paperwork to you potentially up to 95% complete. You would go into it, check that you're happy with it, because again, it's a very important set of information we're not, you know, that we're dealing with here. And then you would digitally sign it and it would return back through the system to ourselves. Um, so it's it's been a bit of a game changer for us. Um, after we then resolved that issue, we then looked at the other areas of the same ilk that we're dealing with. So referencing being one of them. Mm. So the referencing process for the local market is quite, extensive as well. So most agencies are working with at least four variations of reference forms to appease the different states and territories and meet their requirements. Um, so if you're a director of a department, Dev, mm. and um, one of one of your doctors that had worked there wanted you to be their referee, historically, you would be sent an email with potentially up to four attachments on it. Mm -hmm. Each of those attachments, you might need to write in your name, your position, mm -hmm. your uh, it's, um, length that you've been there, say your, your personal bit to clarify who you are as a referee. Now what we're doing is we're sending yourself, the referee, a link similar to the how the doctor was onboarded. They open up that link and they see one set of data capture. So the data is going into it once. They don't realize that it's pre-populating four forms behind the scenes until right. it gets to the end. And then we create those four forms digitally for you. You check them and they look like a real reference form. Well, they are a real reference form. They're just digital. And then you sign it. So we're essentially medical recruiters that have dealt with this pain for 13 years and we finally decided to fix it. And we've done it from the ground up as to how efficient it could possibly be if you had a magic wand and could wave it and make the process as, as painless as possible. Um, that sounds exciting. Yeah, no, it, it is. I mean, and following on from that, a couple more points on the on the platform, um, which, which is called HealthPass, by the way. We then went and integrated with two main systems. So APRA, the medical board, we're, we're integrated with APRA. We're, a, we're an approved data partner or data provider, I think is the uh, technical term. And we also integrated with Vivo, which is the immigration work rights checking system. So all of the doctors that are working with us, um, their medical registration and their work rights are automatically checked every 24 hours um, through the platform. And um, any changes to their status, be that their registration changing um, or their work, state, uh, work rights status, their visa essentially changing, it alerts the company to that. So. What's been previously going on in agencies and in medical workforce units is it's a huge manual process. So once a week or once a fortnight, somebody has to go to the APRA website, go back and forth and check every single um, every single doctor, every single nurse, every single whatever it might be um, to check that their APRA is still current. We've now automated that. We've, it creates a report so you can see any changes. Sensible people will then be still auditing that to check that that's still working. But again, it's, it's massively reduced uh, time and therefore mm. cost.
I, I remember doing that APRA check. It was such a pain in the ass for every single doctor that we had to employ <laughs> or do a locum. And uh, I know some health services don't have a online system. They still do it manually. So are you then licensing this software, HealthPass, to various locum agencies or hospitals? Is that your secondary business? Yeah, so because the platform, I'm, I'm not an IT expert by any stretch of the imagination. I'm a recruiter by trade, as you know, but um, because the platform became such a thing of potential use for people, we then realised how it was going to be costly and complex to actually manage and maintain it. So we decided to actually commercialise it and sell it on to other companies as well. So we have created a totally separate company from One Medical um, with its own, you know, it, 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 entity its own insurances etc and we on sell it to uh, to other people but we manage the platform for them so it's 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 SaaS, it's software as a subscription service right um, so it's a, it's an actual service offering where the agency or the hospital gets access to utilize it as a onboarding credentialing compliance tool for their workforce and it's being used by um, companies now and and, and other um, entities that are using it for not just doctors they're using it for any healthcare practitioner Right. Um, okay. So it's, uh, it's 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 a, it's early day, it's early days at the moment. It's being used by about a dozen other agencies, similar to One Medical, um, but uh, we're we're in the process of uh, late talks with various different hospitals around the country in terms of uh, of how we implement it with them and improve things. So, trying to save everyone time and money. Oh, uh, mate! <laughs> if you can solve that, if you can solve that problem, I think that I think you deserve a gold star and a gold medal because. I can tell you as a bureaucrat, it's an absolute nightmare. And it's also a nightmare as a doctor. It's so much paperwork. It's unbelievable. Just on that note, we've actually had feedback already from it. And we've we've had doctors come back to the system asking if they can get it for their locum agency. Then we've had locum agencies approach us because one of their doctors has requested it. And uh, we've also now had a couple of referees, so a couple of director of departments start making inquiries around it as well because um, they are pleasantly surprised at how slick the referencing process is compared to what they're normally used to. And the referencing is also repeated. So as you know, quite a lot of doctors use the same referees because they're working in the same place. Mm. And quite a lot of references only have a six month expiry on them because of the validity that the states and territories need. So our system allows the same reference to be resent back to the same referee with the same information in it, but the date and the signature removed and it allows the referee to check whether they still agree they can change it if they don't agree with it and then re-sign it so the second time around doing references is similar to a doctor moving from one state and territory to another um, it's much much quicker that's really useful because I, I reckon i do about three references a day and i'm having to like download pdfs and like bloody fill out those things <laughs> and these are the same doctors that i provide references for I've just got one more question. This is turning out to be a very interesting and long episode. So we, so we might actually split it into part two. I've got more questions in part two, but this is the last question for part one. Travel allowance. Now you did go into it. So first of all, you know, travel allowance is either paying for flights, accommodation, or sometimes some agencies or some hospitals pay, you know, uh, the ATO based 88 cents per kilometre if you're driving. Um, so what about um, travel with families? Because, you know, I've, I've had to deal with doctors that travel with families. We had one doctor recently travelling with their dog, so we had to accommodate um, their dog, particularly in rural and remote areas. So how, how do you approach that? Uh, what sort of models do you engage with doctors? Yeah, pets can be a problem. Uh, I love animals, um, but uh, they, they, they're, they're not conducive to ease when it's involving finding accommodation anywhere, especially in rural areas. 
so pets can be a problem unfortunately but i mean in terms of the the again not to sound like a broken record but it varies state by state uh, as does everything with the locum market um but ultimately it's all the same thing there is some form of allowance or 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 cap or it's covered whichever it might be it varies in terms of what those caps and allowances are but predominantly in most cases now in the hospital network across Australia, the, the public hospital network, sorry, across Australia, it's been for many years a given that flights and accommodation are covered. It just, it depends what that flight and accommodation looks like. It would always be economy flights. Um, there might often be only one option on one plane for where you're going and you have to sort of fit in with that because you can't change a flight schedule, as you can imagine. But there is usually more flexibility in larger regional centres, as you, as you can imagine. Um, the accommodation, as I mentioned earlier, is a challenge. Um, that it, they, there may simply not be the right accommodation there. When it comes to bringing families Hospitals will often go out of their way to try and accommodate that, particularly for more senior doctors or regular doctors or doctors that are doing longer stints for obvious reasons, because if they can keep the doctor happy, they can um, you know, improve that work scenario there in the hospital. And if that involves the family, then that's what they're trying to accommodate for all. It wouldn't be that uncommon, though, that if they are looking at bringing the husband or the wife and two children and therefore might need a much more substantial sized property, if it's not available, there might be a request that they contribute to part of the cost or something like that, um, above and beyond whatever the other accommodation would have cost. So by and large, it can be accommodated. It, it is something that does add another complication, but you know that's, that's the world that we live in. Um, metro and rural are often quite different. So metro themselves, the, there may not be a need for accommodation. Um, now that the doctor shortage is uh, potentially worse than what it was previously, and we're seeing more work in metro locations and also mo- more work in private hospitals in those locations as well, that a lot of those guys aren't in the system of providing travel and accommodation or travel allowances because they haven't had to do it historically. So that's something that's being a bit new and felt through because often they're looking for a locum that might live 40 minutes drive down the road on the other side of Sydney or the other side of Melbourne or whatever it might be. And uh, we're now starting to get into the territory where we are flying doctors interstate to different cities for, for that type of metro work as well, which is starting to mean that the clients are considering it as an option, as a second choice usually, of course, they'd rather a, a more local candidate first to try and keep their costs low. Um, and ultimately, local candidates tend to then become more regular by the nature of them being local. Yeah, look, mo- most of the accommodation requests were probably in rural areas, I would have thought, um, particularly families. I know a lot of the rural hospitals have a few houses in town. So they actually buy houses or actually rent houses permanently to accommodate um, doctors and their families. So it's not unusual. Um, I know a couple of networks that I've worked with have a stream of houses that they own and operate and maintain uh, for the benefit of accommodation services. What about travel time? So for example, if I'm traveling, you know, a few hours for a shift and a few hours back after a couple of days of work, is the travel time compensated? Because that's an opportunity cost for anyone. How do you handle that? in general? It's pretty rare in my experience. Um, It's not unheard of, but it is pretty rare. It's usually these days sort of reserved for the much more, um, for want of a better phrase, exotic type work where you Mm. really are going somewhere remote, somewhere truly remote. Places where you might have to overnight on the way there because of the flight schedules and Mm. that type of thing. Um, They may, for example, add on a day's pay in each direction to to accommodate that. But again, it is quite rare. Some of the offshore work that we get involved with, um, they will have like travel allowances on the way out and the way back due to the the way that their systems work. Um, But again, going back to the rates, if you look at quite a lot of the system, there's 
fundamentally a difference in the rates between metro and rural. So the rates are higher in a rural location. So if you want to maximize your time, for example, you, you know, if you are traveling away to get higher rates, that's the compensation that you are getting the higher rate for, um, uh, as opposed to staying at home and having your home comforts and taking a lower rate um, within driving distance from your house, for example. Mm. And also it makes sense to drive for two or three hours and maybe do three or four days and then drive back rather than having to do one or two shifts every now and again. And um, look, we've covered quite a bit. I've actually got quite a lot more questions. It sounds like you don't have anywhere else to be tonight. Is that right? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> you, you, you don't You don't sound, make me sound very exciting here. You know, I've got nothing better to do at nine o'clock on a Thursday night. No, nothing better to do than, than having a chat about locum agencies. Nothing I like more than talking about locums. Sorry. So what we'll do, if that's okay with you, Ryan, is that we'll call this the end of part one. And then in the next episode, we'll go into specifically about the rates and cancellations of shifts. How does that work? What happens if a locum doctor actually really enjoys their work and they want to join the actual hospital network? How would that work? And also talk about overseas and, and also recruitment as well. So um, that's the end of part one with Ryan from One Medical Locum Agencies. Now, as always, if you've enjoyed this episode, um, subscribe, share it with friends and family. Remember, the whole point is to get educated um, about finances, financial concepts. And if you're happy to leave a five-star review on all of the podcasting platforms, Apple, CastBox, Android platforms, Spotify, etc., please do that. And please leave a positive review. I love reading positive reviews and also contact me via Facebook or Twitter for any questions specifically. So we'll come back in part two. My name's Dev Raga. This is My Millennium Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.